Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to episode 136 of the podcast that explores our place in time. Those of you who've spent any time digging around on my Patreon know that I have published a talk I held with trauma therapist Saj Razvi of Innate Path in Denver, uh, held at the Body Hacking Convention in Austin a couple years ago. And this was a conversation about consciousness hacking and psychedelic therapy and where we are as a civilization right now and, and the, the need for this kind of work on a scale that is just unprecedented in human history right now as we, as we fumble our way through this profound transition from one social and psychological order into another. Recently, I met Alyssa Gursky, who works for Saj in Denver, and uh, invited her to be on the show because her work with specifically ketamine and cannabis therapy, as well as art therapy and uh, combinations thereof, I found to be really inspiring the way that she talks and thinks and lives the spirit of this form of service and uh, the way that she's able to articulate joyfully her contributions and, and her participation to this process as it unfolds on our planet right now. So I'm really excited to share this conversation with you, and in large part because it goes places that I've never really heard other conversations about psychedelics or art go, uh, namely into our evolutionary challenge to find new language, to seek a new expressive syntax for the kinds of experiences that we're having, the kinds of experiences that are necessary to, to communicate to one another and to express from our souls at this point. And so this is a really warm, personal, intimate, vulnerable, and confessional conversation. And I, I really got a lot out of it. And I'm, I'm honored and humbled that I can share this with you today. Uh, but first... I want to thank all 150-some Patreon supporters, people that are helping me keep this show independent and ad-free and as freaky as I want it to be, people that are helping me continue to find the time to even do this podcast amidst the competing responsibilities of my work for the Santa Fe Institute and my work as a father, including Yasmin and Joel Elias new Patreon supporters and 156 or so others that continue to chip in a couple bucks a month. I've recently restructured my Patreon rewards tiers because I wanted more of what I'm doing available to more people without the whiff of classism or the, the notion that uh, what I express from my heart and the work that I've been striving to, to give freely of myself now for f like 15 years can continue to do so uh, unobstructedly. So if you want to head on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, and you'll find a ton of cool stuff up there for free now and more stuff than ever available to the lowest two tiers of support. And uh, if you find that the show has been helpful to you and you want to help me keep doing it, then uh, consider signing on as a supporter. We're going to be talking about some really cool stuff in the Future Fossils Book Club this month. Jeff Vandermeer's extraordinary bio-apocalyptic novel, Born, which is just a remarkable, bizarre, 
uh, work of fiction and other really cool stuff coming up soon uh, new music and more anyway even if you don't have the resources to support this show i just want you to know that i'm immensely grateful for your listening for your subscriptions for those of you who have been sharing this podcast on social media or leaving reviews on apple podcasts helping other people find these conversations which i do deeply and sincerely believe are a benefit to people that we still haven't met and i hope to bring those people into the conversation to bring them into the daily discussions we're having on the facebook group and uh, to hear from you all future fossils podcast at gmail and with that i'll shut up and i'll let you enjoy this totally fabulous conversation with psychedelic therapist art therapist Alyssa gursky i hope you love her as much as i do and uh Thanks again, and tune in in a couple weeks for a delicious conversation with travel writer Rolf Potts, one that I've been really excited to get out on the show now for a long, long time. Paz y amor. All right. Well, shall we then? Yeah, let's let's hit it. Perfect. Alyssa Gursky, thank you so much for joining us on Future Fossils. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's a privilege. Well, it's uh it's a really good time to have you today just in terms of the poetry of of life because I just this morning had a a conversation about uh somebody I really love and care about who's been going through some extraordinary hardship for years and years and years. And this question of whether it can be boiled down to life circumstance or, you know, people have been trying to get him into, you know, therapy or, you know, to, to be diagnosed for years and he's just not interested. And I think there's this whole thing around, around blame, you know, like the hardship of, of, you know, thinking that there's something wrong with yourself. But, you know, today was the first day that I was like, you know, really, you know, I, I, I've, I've never wanted to problematize this situation, but <laughs> I, I want you to consider the possibility that you just need to go into a clinic and have yourself shot up with ketamine a few times. <laughs> and so, so, yeah, so I'm really glad. This generation's penicillin, I'm telling you, it's going to become this generation's penicillin. Yeah, I so I'm really, I, I, I think it might be. And so I think, you know, this is a really important time to talk about your work in, in psychedelic therapy and in art therapy and in psychedelic art therapy and in harm <laughs> reduction and all of these things, because 2020 is bonkers. And it's it's already very clear that the work that you're doing is extremely important and is going to just continue to be more and more important and more and more accepted, I think, as the year and the years go on. So where, where should we start? Let's, I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to know kind of, you got a master's at Naropa, right? So maybe is that the right place to start with you? Like to, to talk about how, how you got into this practice? Totally, totally. Yeah, I love talking about how I got into this practice because I, I want any of your listeners and any 
anybody to know that it is not too hard to get involved in this work right now. And we really are on the the very beginning of the psychedelic renaissance, like this this next round of the psychedelic renaissance. So that would be a great place to start. Um, cool. So how... <laughs> How did I get into the field of psychedelic psychotherapy? Yeah. Is that yeah, a, yeah. Totally. Um, so I was 17 and had had a really, really powerful psychedelic experience. I was dealing with pretty severe depression at that age. I was living, you know, just outside of New York City. I was having a really t- hard time finding myself or understanding my place in the world. And I had a really powerful experience with psilocybin and decided that I was going to Google, like, do people use this in therapy? Because that was super therapeutic, like felt my body for the first time, like meditated for the first time. And I've been a really serious meditation practitioner since that experience. Um, So I looked up psychedelics and therapy and I found out about MAPS. And I was like pretty unhappy with um, the undergraduate school that I had started. So I took a really big leap, leap of faith and moved out to Boulder a couple of days before my 19th birthday and finished up my undergraduate at Naropa and went right into my master's. And concurrently, while I was um, pursuing my education, I reached out to Rick Doblin and said, I want to, you know, like thousands of other people do. <laughs> I want to get involved. How do I do it? And I, there must have been like 10 shooting stars over my head in that moment because he answered me within an hour. And he put me in touch with um, the PI, um, Marcela Otolora, who uh, she is one of the principal investigators and trainers for MAPS's um, MDMA study, training, such a powerhouse. And um, Sarah Gale, who is a psychedelic therapist and the, currently the director of the Zendo Project, which is um, MAPS's, I guess, their child company. MAPS is their parent company. So mm. uh, the Zendo Project who does harm reduction at various festivals, including Lightning in a Bottle, Burning Man, things like that. So I was like 19 and met Sarah and Marcela, and they just saw the fire in my eyes and kind of took me under their wings and... I've just been really devoted to cultivating community around psychedelic therapy for the last six years now. And it's really just been consistently showing up, learning, expressing interest, and being really vocal about my interest in psychedelic therapy and my own healing with it. And yeah, it it really was a straight shot for me. (laughs) So is it it too personal to get into the actual benefit that it had in your life and like the proof of principle, like why, why you became, why the fire lit in your eyes. And like, I mean, you know, we, we kind of started at, uh, in a way in like act two there. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. I would absolutely love to talk about that. So I think that my early psychedelic experiences showed me that I was something outside of depression Being pretty young, 17 or 18, there was a sense of, I am a depressed person. Like I am, like I I was this depression. I wasn't separate from it. It was in, just encoded in my DNA and in my identity. And all of my art was really sad. Like 
I'm so lucky to have a good mom <laughs> that has kept my art throughout my life because now that I'm an art therapist, I could go back and sort of really see how that was a part of my identity. So um, I think that around 17 or 18 and um, building a relationship with psilocybin, there was a sense of, yeah, separateness from it. And finding Buddhism around that time helped me build a sort of framework for how to build relationships with it in ordinary states. I think that finding a mindfulness practice shortly after learning about psychedelics deeply helped me integrate and ground and find community around ordinary states that were, you know, organically induced because, you know, meditating for six hours will cause me to feel, you know, like I've microdosed. So um, <laughs> the true benefit, <laughs> the true benefit that I've gotten from it has been learning my parts, learning my internal landscape, learning the places that I can't see, learning my shadow and building relationship with my body. You know, I, I grew up with a, with a really sick parent and I think there was just a fear encoded in me. Mm. And especially when I um, started pursuing ketamine psychotherapy when I was about 21, um, which I, I did consistently every week for about two and a half years, I would do like somatically oriented ketamine sessions in um, the innate path model, which I'm sure we'll come back to. But Definitely, um, yes. yeah, body, yeah <laughs> body centered psychotherapy, being able to be in a non-ordinary state and having somebody help me find sensation in my body and learning my body and trusting my body has dramatically changed. Um, normally, <laughs> traditionally, I'm a bit of an awkward person, but it used to be like deep social anxiety, like looking people in the eyes was impossible for me. And ketamine therapy really helped me learn that not only is the world safe, like the world isn't this awful place that's about to leave me, but that my body is also safe. That like, I can feel safe in my body. I can feel safe in relationship. I can trust people. But growing up with like a deep fear, I never knew how to be fully in relationship. I was either half in or half out because my nervous system and my body on some level is like, I don't know if this person's going to die. Like, Growing up with a sick parent is so hard on a developing psyche because it's like the people that you look to, like as children, I'm in addition to being a trained psychedelic therapist, right now I'm a child art therapist, which is the most psychedelic thing I've ever done, to be honest, but <laughs> learning <laughs> Mr. Rogers by day and Anne Shulgin by night, um, but there's a, the sense in kids that at a young age, they're such sponges and my brain learned from my dad, like, I can't full, full here, you know? So, mm. yeah, for me, especially the extensive journey into ketamine therapy helped me find the narratives that I had around relationship and really start to um, really reparent myself. To be honest with you, it helped me find a lot of wounded parts of myself and reparent myself. And it was like, not high doses of ketamine, um, consistently showing up with the same person every week and feeling uncomfortable, you know? Like I, I was trained in the model of ketamine or psychedelics, you know, including cannabis, are adjuncts to therapy. But the relationship is the healing part. And there are some, some models that really do say that 
you know, you can give somebody MDMA and let them have a self-guided journey. Like the inner healer does the healing. But I think there's also a lot of merit to the non-ordinary state can help you get out of your rational mind and into something deeper. But the relationship is really the healing part. So, yeah, I got a lot to say about that. (laughs) I'd like to go a little deeper into when you talk about your relationship. Obviously, there's the relationship with the clinician. But there's also yeah. the relationship with your body. So I'm, you know, I'm really curious because I think most, my understanding is, so, okay, a little context for listeners, you know, your boss, Saj Rosby, um, mm-hmm. is actually my former roommate in Austin, yeah. Texas. And <laughs> um, b- even before that, you know, I met him at the MAPS uh, I met him actually at uh, a MAPS fundraiser. I was playing music at the home of Aubrey Marcus in Austin. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. we, you know, we hit it off there when I, you know, for the first time I got to see videos of some of the the uh, MDMA sessions and, and like watched someone uh, wake up from their trauma, you know, like yeah. come, come to terms with that. And it was really powerful. Uh, and a really beautiful event. And, um, and, you know, then I, the next time I saw Saj was at the MAPS conference in 2017. And he told me at that point that he had started using some of my music in the clinical playlists for the MDMA trials. And so like, that's like one of the, I mean, you know, that's sort of off to the side. It's like almost not even like relevant to this conversation, but it is a point of, of intense personal pride that, that he uh, found my music worthwhile for this and that, that it has, it has been a part of this process for people. Um, But so anyway, like, you know, that's, that's how I, you know, that's how I know about the kind of work that you're doing is, is through Saj. Yeah. And we had a conversation that I'll link to in the show notes at the body hacking conference in Austin, uh, in 2018 about the, uh, intense need, you know, that, that we're, we're kind of to live through so much change. And this is a topic for maybe a little bit later in the conversation when we can get a little bigger and more abstract, but like the, you know, that, that there is this, this sense now in which we're, we're kind of processing not just personal, but also collective traumas. And that it seems like, you know, you are coming up into your work, uh, at a time now where this stuff is extremely important at a, on the level of the entire human civilization and not just, you know, people who were abused as, as children or had to, to live through heart, you know, intense uh, personal hardship while they were growing up or, you know, or military veterans or whatever. But anyway, so context, but then my, uh, my question for you is, is to, to get into more about like what it actually looks like to do this work. Like how, cause my understanding is that most of the ketamine centers that exist today are pronouncedly different from innate path in the way that they actually treat people. And, and that, that most people are just kind of, uh, getting injected and then sitting there on a couch. And there's this element of the body that seems really crucial and really potent. And I, I think, 
especially for people who are more the the reputation of this substance as you know a veterinary tranquilizer that was first synthesized as a replacement for PCP uh, <laughs> and and that has largely just most of the press that it's received over the years has been about its recreational abuse. So, you know, what is what does it look like in this sort of best possible scenario? And yeah, how do how do you work through that kind of a process? And how how did you on the receiving end work through that kind of a process? What does it mean to use this as an adjunct to somatic therapy? Okay, long winded question over. Thank you. And go. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, First of all, I love I love getting to be like a a spokesperson for a scapegoated substance. I I really treasure it because ketamine is such, um, before I answer your question, a really big um, thing happening in the psychedelic discourse right now is this idea of psychedelic exceptionalism. And um, one of my like dearest friends, my roommate, um, Kristen Karras, who is, um, I don't remember her exact title at Dance Safe, but she's integral at Dance Safe's operations and she's one of their staff members. She's been teaching me a lot about this idea of psychedelic exceptionalism, which means that like no drug is better than any other drug. Like that's great if you use methamphetamine, that's great if you use LSD, that's great if you use DMT. Like to, to bring into the public sphere this idea that like, because ketamine is um, misused and is scapegoated an awful lot does not negate its health benefit, the benefit that it can have in psychotherapy, because it dramatically changed my life. So before going into that, I just want to name that that's a really strong, I don't have many strong opinions that I voice. I try to be somebody who's pretty I try to take in different perspectives, but that's um, an opinion that I I hold really strongly is that it's important to, in this work, hold the lens of um, psychedelics aren't better than other drugs, you know, but I digress there. Just important to mention. Um, So ketamine specifically, I had it explained to me as this, by using it in therapy, you are dissociating from your dissociation. And though that concept sounds really backwards, being a person who, like, I've I've always been an intellect. I've always, like, I have, if I had boxes of all of my possessions, the thing I would have the most of is my books. And I Mm. love referring people to different concepts or connecting people with books that they might need in that moment. Like, I, I just... I have like a spider energy in this way of I love connecting ideas and thus why I find myself pioneering this like subfield of a subfield, you know, being psychedelic art therapy. So I'm just an, a heady person. I had gone around for 23, probably at that point, like 22 years, not really knowing my body. So just I am somebody who would like bump into walls or not have any spatial awareness, like literally no awareness of my body. And yeah, that came from learning at a young age that like the world isn't safe. Like my body wasn't safe, like really protect yourself. And that comes from my family. It comes from my intergenerational lineage. Like I'm a second generation American and both sides of my family are Eastern European Jews. Like my family came to America as the Holocaust was starting. So pretty heavy lineage stuff learning that like the world is not safe. So 
To actually answer your question, ketamine, when one can separate slightly from dissociation, like imagine if there was a spectrum. So there's two poles and one end is embodiment and one end is dissociation. Wherever you fall on that spectrum, by coming into the therapeutic space and the intention is to heal, you know, the intention is to work on trauma, to grow as a person, psychospiritual exploration, whatever reason that you're receiving ketamine psychotherapy, it just becomes like WD-40 for the soul. You can just slightly move, even if you just move a centimeter away from your dissociation, there is more space to be in the body and to track sensation. And um, I, I literally mean like closing your eyes, touching in with your body. And like in the innate path model, a big thing that we do is talk about trauma and focusing on the body. So if I start to recount something difficult that's happened to me while on ketamine, my therapist is bringing me back to myself and is saying like, while you're talking about that, what are you noticing in your body? What are you noticing? So let's say I'm talking about, um, uh, you know, a, a difficult encounter that felt verbally abusive, for example. Um, while talking about that, noticing, you know, as I talk about something difficult, my, my throat starts to feel tight and my shoulder starts to feel tense. And then switching to talking about the sensation. So the story, as we're talking about a story, it is bringing up somatic sensation. And as the sensation feels more online, because one, it's safer to feel it because ketamine is there. Ketamine makes it, or for, I'd say the first year of my treatment made it easier for me to like touch in with my body. And that is, yeah, that's like a brief explanation of how it's used. It's it's a tool. And I mean, I hear from most of the therapists practicing that they don't really see a difference between ketamine or cannabis because we do both at the Denver clinic. So it's a bit abstract. I'm sure if listeners have, uh, if that idea of, you know, somatic therapy, listening to the body, if that's a little abstract, I can touch in with that more, but that is a brief idea of how it's used in therapy. Well, okay. So, you know, I know that with MDMA therapy, one of the big things is that the effect of the substance allows someone to take a position with respect to traumatic memories, that they're able to stand in regard to those memories in a place of compassion for their younger self, for, totally. uh, you know, the, the abuser that they may, you know, or, or, you know, the other parties involved in that experience. And... Something similar seems like it's going on with ketamine. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised to hear that that it's seen as somewhat interchangeable with cannabis, um, because you know my understanding is that the effects, the neurochemical effects of cannabis and ketamine are very different. Like that that uh, cannabis uh, tends to catalyze uh, n- n- like a neuronal apoptosis. You know that it helps the brain shed. The, the the you know the cells that are sort of clogging it, whereas yeah. ketamine stimulates the growth of new neural connections and also uh, downregulates the um, the amygdala. So that you know there's this thing that that is really you know uh, commonly reported in in like arrowid you know stuff like the literature mm-hmm. around this experience. Mm-hmm. 
of people being able to it's it's a it's similar somewhat to the MDMA in that people are able to sit with something that would ordinarily be very uncomfortable or uh, would induce fear and regard it with curiosity rather than uh, disgust or repulsion or or dread. And so mm-hmm. I'm yeah I'm curious once the once the feeling is identified in the body like and it's it's noticed um then what i mean like movement is involved or or like how does this work and then how how is this related to the way that this is is processed in a in like a a, a cannabis context hmm. this highlights such this is a point that i think about all the time so i'm really glad that we're that we're diving into the minutiae of this so once a person, so I'm just going to speak from my personal experience as a client rather than as a practitioner for this, because I feel that I can speak to, yeah, the client perspective a lot more. Cool. Okay. Once the feeling is located in the body and you're in an ordinary state, um, how to explain it? Um, movement starts happening on an unconscious level. So like, For example, if I'm working through a stressful situation, the body can start shaking, but I'm not consciously doing it. In the lineage of somatic therapy, there's this belief that we, I mean, we are animalistic. The body has a natural rhythm of how it processes through stress and traumatic events. But our society doesn't teach us that and doesn't leave space for that, really. So um, I don't know if you're a part of the ecstatic dance community at all, but there's a big, um, a big emphasis that I've learned through ecstatic dance that shaking is really healthy. You know, even thinking about a dog when he goes from outside to inside, that brief shake that animals do is really healthy. So that is a big way that the nervous system processes through things, uh, through movement, sometimes through tears, sometimes through yelling. Um, yeah, that is, uh, it feels really mystical that, you know, you're just talking, you're just talking, you find something in the body and then the body starts doing something unconsciously, but it is a really big relationship of trust. It's a really big relationship of trusting your body, trusting your own inner healer, which is really similar to the message that the map study gives out. But, um, you know, I've worked on the MAP study um, both in Boulder and in Fort Collins as a night attendant for about four years now. And it's been a huge privilege because people finish their clinical days. So they finish eight hour long therapy sessions. And then I get to hang out with them overnight and just make sure that they're safe. And my job is just to be like a professional friend at that point, you know, to listen, not provide therapeutic services, but just to hang out and hear about how the day went. And um, a big thing that I've learned from the MAPS model is that it's biochemical. So what the MDMA study right now, which I don't know if you saw, expanded access just got officially approved, which means that like sites are going to be able to actually start practicing. So really, really proud of all of the hard work that everyone at MAPS has been doing because this is a huge victory for MDMA. Um, So anyways... Um, biochemical, meaning that they don't, they're a bit therapy agnostic, as Saj says, meaning they, you can use a modality with it. It's mostly non-directive, meaning that the client's process leads the way, but 
the idea is exactly what you were talking about with the amygdala and being able to deal with certain processes differently. That our modality at an eight path is a lot more centered around the body. And like I was saying, that process of listening to the body and working working through. So our idea is way more centered in relationship is healing and that the body needs space to process through the the junk that's filling it up. Like all of this unresolved stress and trauma that we hold in our bodies is just waiting there. And that that has been the most potent thing that I've learned through the healing is that I have more energy than I did when I was a kid. I'm happier than I was in my childhood because there's not just gunk. I mean, gunk is not the most professional word to use, but that's really what it's like moving through content in the nervous system. So there's a relational model within psychedelic therapy. There's non-directive models. There's biochemical models. And like we were saying before, ketamine does have a biochemical model. There is a belief that if you give somebody, you know, an IV of ketamine, their symptoms of depression will lower. But, um, as a psychotherapist, my personal stance is um, actual holistic healing versus symptom management and reduction. And of course, symptom management is important, but my my devotion to the path of psychedelic psychotherapy is really focused on giving people their lives back. And for me, teaching people creativity as um, as an identity to track through their process and to an identity moving forward after the psychedelic healing process as a way to hear the body. As you can see, most of my work centers around the nervous system, the body, the unconscious realms and things like that. So yeah, because it's not, because it's so new, I mean, it's psychedelic psychotherapy is not new, but as a discipline in the United States that is legally accepted, it's in its renaissance, you know, it's coming back again and people don't quite yet have the language to understand um, the differences between different ways that it's practiced. So yeah, the innate path model really focuses on relationship and on the body. And we can do the same, you know, tracking, tracking the body, tracking the nervous system, all of that can be done without drugs. And that was what Saj did for years. They did, um, they went under the name trauma dynamics and Man, beautiful work. Just we're doing the same modality. It just took a lot longer <laughs> because there weren't drugs online. But yeah, I uh, I hope that answers your question. I always go on a bit of a tangent there, but yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So there's there's the other component which you've you've already brought up too, which is the art therapy. And yes. um, is it a similar kind of process with that where? You're just allowing. So, okay. So like, for example, and I actually posted about this on Facebook, um, you know, being a father, taking on a full-time job, moving across the country, uh, shouldering an enormous amount of new responsibility in my life. Uh, I feel mm -hmm. like over the last couple of years, I kind of for like, I lost touch with this part of myself that was really core to my, you know, my own creative expression and, and like specifically being an artist, I mean, specifically being a musician, being a, you know, yeah. a singer and a, and a guitarist. And last night the dam just burst and I wrote my first new song in like three or four years. 
And I was so excited about it that it just like, I like, I kind of like lost my shit and like, just like ran out (laughs) into the proverbial street and was, you know, clanging bells about it and just like, so, so happy. And it was my experience with that song was that it really like I, I had the sense in the process of allowing just it to erupt from me totally unobstructed. And actually, it's the fastest I think I've ever written a song. Like it was like, wow. you know, it was like lancing a boil or something, you know, it was like, it just like it needed to come out. And it came out so yeah. fast. And it came out oh, so completely. Wow. And so I'm, I'm, I'm probably begging, not only begging the question, but also probably answering the question for you, but I don't want to do that. I want to hear your, <laughs> your side of it. Cause you know, my sense is that the art therapy is very similar to the somatic therapy in terms of just allowing whatever happens to come out and, and to really stand out of its way and, or to, to, to be the way to form an open gate for this thing to arise and emerge through you. And is that, is that the case? And like how, in, in what, in what ways does the somatic therapy and the art therapy differ? And like, it, it, why would one or the other be sort of more like, why would one choose to go with one or the other depend, you know, in certain contexts or like, why, why would you choose to recommend one over the other and so on? Like I'm, you know, what are the, what are the, yeah. How does that all look? Mm, I love that question. It's awesome because it it's being written right now. So it it is so open and that's it's both the most exhilarating and anxiety provoking thing because it's the oh I, I talk about this with um with Alex Gray a lot. He's one of my mentors and I have so much love for that man. But something we talk about a lot is that people have been doing psychedelic art therapy technically for millennia making like needing to document mystical experiences through image is an ancient practice so i just am in the first wave of this generation of people who are like wait a second why do, why isn't this a scientifically studied discipline you know so art therapy as a discipline is fairly young started in the US, uh, maybe the 50s or 60s, it became a technical discipline. And I something I adore about it is that all of its founders are women. <laughs> it's just, it makes me feel really proud to be in a lineage that is so femme dominated. I feel like that's really rare. So art therapy as a discipline, there are two major thought divergent paths with it. So one of the paths is art psychotherapy, which means through clinical trials, we can, or, you know, through just practicing, we can ask a certain series of tasks and the imagery can provide data. So through asking people questions and through specific interventions, we can learn specific things about people that they may not necessarily be able to speak about. So that it might be they're not able to speak about it because it's scary. They might not be able to speak about it because it's still in their unconscious or shadow. Or they might be too young to name what is happening. So in the other discipline is exactly what you're naming, is art as therapy. There is a long line of people in the field of art therapy that talk about the power of creative expression, like 
if you don't have a, a creative practice and in your healing journey, you develop a resource for moving through emotional content or for hearing yourself better, that that inherently, so the artist's identity can be healing because you, I mean, it, it on so many levels, it gives you a resource and it also answers this existential dread of like, who am I in the world and what am I? It's like art can hold contradictory facts. Art can hold suffering. Art can hold nonlinear information. And it's, it's just a really powerful modality. So that being said, as an art therapist, I think I practice a little bit of everything. I think in terms of psychedelic therapy, art has a place in many facets. So I would see somebody as an individual client in art therapy for so many reasons. Um, I love working with, uh, this is something I've just been starting to do, but work with teens around issues of gender expression. I obviously can't feed drugs to a teen yet. So. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> this is not yes. the, uh, um, the, what is it? Uh, Unio Dieta Vegetal, right? Or yeah. like the Brazilian churches, they do that with ayahuasca. Right? But that's a whole different thing. Anyway, please continue. Whole different thing. But um, art can hold contradictory information. So if a child is going through a process of trying to figure out, like, I was born with the pronoun she, her, but I don't feel that way. Art can really hold so much information and it could hold gender confusion in one piece. And yeah, I think the issue of gender and sexuality is a really big topic for me, which feels edgy be, having my big focuses be like sex and drugs and art. <laughs> But I guess I just got to go for it. That's what my heart said. Round the bases. It just uh, add rock and roll and you're, you're good. <laughs> well, sounds like you have the music for it. So <laughs> yeah, let's, let's collab anyway. Um, so I think for me, I, I can see people with the individual modalities and some adults might feel more comfortable, like a one-on-one to the unconscious with art. My whole big sentiment with why psychedelics and art therapy um, synergize really well is because art helps us create the map of our psyche. It's how we can learn ourselves, like whatever symbols are coming through you, whether it's like repetitive pattern. Um, a well-trained art therapist can help you understand what that pattern means to you, what, what messages your psyche sending you through image. That is my philosophy on it is all of the art is our psyche communicating. And it could be communicating from a personal level, from a collective level. And once we can build relationship with symbols, we really can start to hear our inner voice better. And for people who are dealing with anxiety, depression, trauma is my big area of focus. I've been really uh, I've spent the last six years of my professional career really focused on trauma-informed care. And I think that the whole process of moving through trauma is a hero's journey. And art helps document that hero's journey. So, yeah, I forgot where I was going with that. Let's um, talk a little bit more about the uh, the archetypal part of this, because that's, really, yes. that's really curious, because that's, that's where we kind of get out of... Um, not out of, but that's where we can link the concrete sort of praxis of this to your cosmology. Uh, cosmology. And I'm, I'm really curious yes. 
how you understand uh, that kind of Jungian dimension um, and, and what that suggests in terms of, you know, what healing actually is from a sort of more cosmic and evolutionary framing. Yes. Yes. I love that question. Um, wow. Oh my God. There's so many directions to go with that. So <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, ask it to me in a simpler way. Cause there's so All many right, ways so, I can go so, with that. So how do you understand archetypes in, in relationship to the individual and, yes. and like, and, and like, what do you think is actually going on when someone is expressing them repeatedly through this praxis of, of unobstructed expression? You know, like awesome. if something keeps coming up again and again and again, like what is going on? What's what's happening there? Yeah. And what does that mean in terms of the way that you understand, um, you know, the, the, the deeper question or the broader question of, of like, what are we doing here and what, what are we, you know? Yeah. Cause like, uh, actually just as a, as a nod to uh future fossils listener, Chris Noel in the Facebook group, he, uh, he's, he, he made a comment recently that like, we are, that we're ideas and that, and I was like, Oh, well, whose ideas are we? And he's like, well, we're, we're, each other's ideas and uh you know there's that's you know that's uh that could branch off into a whole extra separate thing but i think that there's something about you know the you know this this the lowercase self as a uh you know as a story as as an idea uh as a concept and that it it sort of slots into this pantheon alongside all of these other uh, transpersonal phenomena, you know, and and um, their ontological status. Uh, I I sort of bracket. I, I you know I, I do my best to remain sort of uh, unresolved or agnostic about it. But I'm really curious uh, what kind of sense you make of this, and you know how that guides your your work. Awesome. So I'm glad you said the word transpersonal. So I, as you stated in the very beginning, I have two degrees in transpersonal psychology. So for me, it the, the idea of the collective unconscious feels very matter of fact. It feels like there are symbols in this world that we have related to as a species for millennia. And symbols come through when they have something to teach us. So symbol amplification is a really big part of my clinical work. And symbol amplification can be addressed in a lot of different ways. So in through my um, practice as an art therapist, the idea of symbol amplification and then the idea of artistic sublimation, I think, are what you're touching on. So sublimation is like an old Freudian concept that there are ways of dealing with quote unquote, unacceptable urges or problematic feelings, um, that sublimation is finding a way to work through them that is quote unquote, socially acceptable. And though I like, I don't really feel that the concept is very up to date through the lens of artistic sublimation. It basically says if you're having 
For example, through the therapeutic lens, if you're experiencing trauma, by allowing your body to make art through that, having that, you know, for some people, the unacceptable urge, quote unquote, might be isolating from their family system. It might be, you know, in my case, it was just like not knowing how to relate to people. It was having really severe social anxiety. And by making art through my whole ketamine experience, I was able to transmute and ha- give that feeling space instead of just pushing it down into the shadow. So when symbols keep coming up, I think that they have messages for us. And the the gift that I love helping people give themselves, I'm not giving people anything. I mean, I'm giving them ideas, but I really like to think of myself as a facilitator rather than a healer. Because I think I'm a co-adventurer. I am a co-explorer and I could offer people tools to see themselves, but they do the work. I'm not a friend. Yeah. (laughs) A professional trained friend, you know. And though I I hold my training in high regard and think that I have skills that, you know, a, a standard person may not have, but it's not a hierarchy of like, I am a powerful therapist and you are like a a wounded person, you know? I think we're co-adventurers in the psyche. So the this idea of who talks about that? James Hillman. He's in the Jungian lineage, which is a lot of where my symbol amplification tools come from. Um, there are these ideas of, so for example, um, a symbol that is coming up, the spiral, for example. If you're drawing spirals over and over again and you're working with an art therapist, they might recommend looking at the history of the spiral or sitting down with a painting that you make of a spiral and having a dialogue with it, like literally writing out, like free associating with this spiral. And I'd say with most certainty, anytime a symbol is coming up, it has a message for you. And a spiral could mean something different to me than it does to you. It could relate to something that happened in my childhood that needs to be worked out. But I'm a firm believer that images come forth to us when something is being worked out or when something needs to empower us. Like I started drawing jellyfish. I started drawing jellyfish when I was like 12 and I got, I grew up on the beach and I got stung by a jellyfish so bad when I was a kid that I couldn't walk for a week in the summer. Like my foot was so messed up by it. So when I kept drawing them, I was like, maybe it's related to the trauma from getting hurt. But Jellyfish have become this big symbol of like surrender and just going with and trusting what the universe is unfolding for me. And it's become the symbol. Like um, I made a pendant when I was a glassblower that is a jellyfish that I wear anytime I do sessions because it is my symbol of that is um, that's what I want to embody, being able to trust the natural flow of things. And it took me years to figure that out, like what the jellyfish was trying to communicate to me. So people often think, oh, you're an art therapist. You must like know all my fucked up. Oh, sorry. All my messed up things from childhood. Just by this looking is an at explicit show. Just you, yeah. you're, you're good. You don't need to self-censor. Okay. I just had the urge to say a bunch of bad stuff, but I'm not a child. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you can fucking can go I for it? it. Yeah, it's good. Go for it. Um, but <laughs> um, yeah, there's 
there's just a lot of power in listening to symbols. And I know that answer isn't, um, it seems really surface and matter of fact, but that's just how I relate to symbols in my practice is that they have messages and there are set tools and there are, you know, new tools can be invented, but the ones that I work with are really um, come from a Jungian um, transpersonal lineage of really listening to the body, that the body has all of the wisdom that you'll ever need. And by having somebody else invite you to look at the symbols that are coming up through various practices, like I said, it's it's so informative. And my whole intention and journey is, I think this is what I was saying before, that art helps us document the landscape and psychedelics show us new areas of the landscape that we didn't know existed. So by seeing those new areas of the landscape and documenting them, just like continuing the process of individuation to, you know, call on Jung again, this idea that the shadow doesn't always have to be in the shadow, that there are parts of us welcome that we may not necessarily feel completely comfortable with. There may be pieces like really wounded parts from childhood that are really suffering. And through the practice of creative expression, they get to have space. And the cool thing is that I tell clients this all the time, put it in a sketchbook because you can close a book. You can go through a process of scapegoating an image. Like if you need to burn an image, that's the type of stuff that I'm here for. You know, clients really diving into ritual of part of my shadow that I'm not ready to look at. And can you consciously decide that you're not ready to look at it? It's just about giving people in my eyes creative agency and agency over their healing, agency over their life. And for me, the the marriage of psychedelic medicines and art really help. It provide a, a guardrail of moving through the psyche and a guardrail of moving towards wholeness and that, yeah, lots of feelings on that. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I, I want to, uh, I want to press on this in the way that you might like press on an origami flower to open it. Um, yeah. this, this question of when you talk about, you know, symbols arising to, uh, to communicate something where, I mean, this is, uh, this is sort of a challenge, um, but I, I hope I hope that you will, uh, you know, take it as a, a playful challenge. Um, I'm into. Where do you where do you think the symbols are coming from? Like, where are they located? Because um, it, it it seems to me like this this question starts to address. You know, it gets us closer to some of these other things that come up in the psychedelic experience about uh, transcending and, and I'll, you know, since you brought up, uh, you know, gender identity and, and uh, queerness and non-binary, I think like the biggest non-binary thing that, that we're like in the midst of, of processing as a species right now is the uh, inside outside self other thing. Yeah, you know, and like that—that that we're like we're we are groping for the language with which to communicate how, uh, like we need a new syntax to express a new set of spatio-temporal relationships that are <laughs> adequate 
to the experiences that we're having, you know, that are uh, like Margaret Wertheim uh, wrote a book about this, uh, The Pearly Gates of Cyberspace, A History of Space from Dante to the Internet. Now, this is a book that was written in the 90s, but, you know, she's talking about how, like, you know, we used to regard our... You know, we lived we lived in like shells, you know, like the, in these like sort of crystalline spheres that we thought the planets were sort of rolling along these these spheres. And then in the modern age, we uh, we opened up into this kind of H.P. Lovecraft Cartesian <laughs> infinity, right? Like that that, that suddenly uh, we it was an important evolutionary move to decenter ourselves um, and to erupt from the, the embeddedness in these, uh, you know, epicycles and these, you know, this, this sort of layered cosmology. But, you know, now I think we're, we're, we're back at a point where our embeddedness in the electronic surround in the, the way that we are shaped and immersed shaped by and immersed in this intense and just like bottomless uh, media environment where, you know, there's like, we're living inside uh, a hypertext again. And so there's a sense <laughs> in which I think that, you know, that, that 2020, my friends and I have been talking about this here in Santa Fe, like 2020 seems very clearly to be the moment at which it, it is obvious to us that the science fiction fruition is <laughs> the uh, the enunciation of like high fantasy that like we're, we're yeah. actually that we've that we we're back in some sense like the future is a like we're living in a in a uh, like a dark age. Uh, yeah. and, and that the the dark age, however, was the age where these really rich and um, meaningful cosmologies, th- this is the soil out of which they grew, out of which, uh, you know, hospice and the hospital grew, out of which interfaith discourse grew in Europe mm-hmm. um, at the crossroads of trade routes. And, um, you know, the, the, the time before the Renaissance is underappreciated uh, historically as, as this time when we were, um, you know, there was this, this rich melange of, of, uh, cross pollinations and influences. And so, you know, so now it seems like, you know, rather than in in some ways, you know, we're, we're graduating into this nonlinear understanding that, uh, retains or, or revives, uh, in a Marshall McLuhan kind of sense, a lot of the features of that earlier um, medieval cosmology that that we are we are embedded in a sort of n-dimensional fluid and co-determinant matrix of becoming, and that's that's like totally out there. But that's just my way of, of articulating. Oh, that's it. My jam. You work really, really hard. I don't know how we're gonna how we're gonna really put this cur- on to an episode. Hey. Yeah, I'm. I'm just really curious how you, uh, you know, wh- what you think is going on with space 
and time right now and how, how that figures into this and, and how, you know, like, like, again, just to re- return to the, the simplest articulation of this question, like, where are the symbols coming from? <laughs> I cannot believe that amazing graph circles back to that question. It makes me want to answer with 42, but I don't know. Um, (laughs) I think symbols, it's, it's this really interesting question because, uh, a lot of the focus I'm currently trying to take is looking at all of this transpersonal wisdom through the lens of neuroscience. So, um, we know that we hypothesize there's research to believe that the our, our the left hemisphere of our brain is where we're analytical logical it's where writing comes f- or where you know when we're writing that's the part of our brain that's activated versus right brain and lower regions of the brain that are also associated with traumatic experiences i.e amygdala oh god what are the other major places in the brain i don't want to say anything incorrect but old amygdala we know that one um but anyways the region in the brain where images come from are nonverbal. so it's this really interesting question of it's inherently a nonverbal space so when people have no relationship with artistic expression i love doing this thing called art speed dating and it's an event that i love hosting and i yeah i learned about it while i was studying art therapy So basically letting people try different art materials and moving through them just by feeling. So it's um, time and time again, when I introduce people to new art materials, it's not think about what you want to draw. It's what's naturally arising. So inherently, I'd say for the last, I've been studying art therapy for six years now. It is, it is just from this nonverbal cosmic well of information it it, it's a nonverbal space and having a relationship with um the chapel of sacred mirrors out in uh new york a plug they are currently building the first art church they're building entheon which uh, it's been such a privilege to watch it grow over the last few years but being around visionary artists and hearing that uh, there's this divine download, like it either is coming up from the earth or in through the crown that symbols sort of just come to you or you can work with them consciously, but that there is just a well that we have to produce from that. There is, (laughs) that doesn't really answer your question besides the fact that neuroscience agrees, the transpersonal agrees that there is a portion of the psyche that is, in all of us and is nonverbal and it's it just is that in its isness and you can poke harder and I'm, I'm into digging into that more but it from what i've seen time and time again it really is it's nonverbal which makes it ineffable which makes it hard to be like i there is no exact center <laughs> in my core or in my limbs that um the creative expression comes from because it is it feels so energetic you know it feels so based in something bigger than myself but it's like asking where where's consciousness in the body you know the the discourse of where if there's dmt in the body where does it live you know for a while people thought that dmt is in the pineal gland there's 
plenty of theories on that. And I remember when I was um, witnessing someone in my life get really into the Wim Hof method that then there was this idea that DMT might actually be in the lungs. And that to say that creativity comes from one specific place, I would feel concerned that it may limit the possibility that it comes from both everything and nothing, that it comes from an, an ineffable space that is just a part of being alive because sometimes music makes me want to make art and symbols come through. Sometimes it's, you know, being at an art museum all day. Sometimes it's being sad. Sometimes it's being really happy. Sometimes it's sensual. Sometimes it's, you know, whatever emotion is, I'm typically the type of person that if I'm going somewhere, my bag is full of art supplies. And I think I might be a good person to go into non-ordinary states with for that reason that I always have <laughs> things. <laughs> I think I, uh, I just, I always love to play and to be with sensory experience. And that, I saw an Alan Watts quote about that recently, that the purpose of being alive is to experience and that it's, it's a, it can be as simple as that. And by casting a wide net, it leaves more space, just in, in my mind, it leaves more space for greater possibility. It leaves more space for creativity to be present in everything, you know? Mm. I made that really, I made that really transpersonal. I'll take it. Yeah. You know, the, you, you keep talking about the well, it's, uh, the I Ching hexagram 48, the well, mm. which is like, okay, so there's, so there is this like pre-verbal, non-verbal sense about it, but it's also, it's, it is, it has been identified, you know, and I, I'm it, much like Terrence McKenna had, you know, this, this uh, badge about how psilocybin had enabled him to talk about things that were supposedly impossible to talk about. You know, I mean, that's sort of the asymptote that this show is constantly arcing toward is mm -hmm. like, you know, the new language. Like when I had Onyx Ashanti on the show, you know, and he's, he's creating this, this, uh, this suit that he can wear that he can express a new body language motion music through you know and, and that's like like words words may not be enough you know when i had the tea fairy on you know she was talking about uh that the uh star dancer science fiction trilogy and like the idea that that maybe we need to bring movement in and i you know i had android jones and, and anthony Thogmorton <laughs> on and we were talking about the same thing about this this idea that um the more the closer we approach our technologies, the closer they approach us, you know, the more finely we are able to resolve our co-evolutionary dance. Then um, I, I was thinking about, I read this article earlier uh, last night, actually, that they said that everybody assumes that the, maybe you've heard this, the body temperature is 98.6. Like that's the, uh, the human yeah body temperature well it turns out uh -huh. that uh over the last century that has changed it's actually gone down that the the human the average human body temperature uh is it's a little different for men and, and for women but it's like gone down something like between half a point and a point you know yeah. so it's like 90 it's like it's closer to 98 degrees now and 
And I, so I like immediately I like ran into the bathroom and, and like got the thermometer and I was like, oh yeah, 98.1. And one of the things that they were, they were like, well, you know, we've, we're collecting better data about this. We're not just assuming that it's 98.6, you know, and like, as we're able to track our biometric data, uh, more and more routinely then certain things like this, like you were saying, the shadow doesn't have to stay in the shadow. Like we're going to start noticing that a lot of our assumptions are not these like, um, static fixtures of our lives, you know, Mm -hmm. but are, are in fact, uh, in motion. And, and so the question is, um, why is it that the human body temperature has gone down (laughs) over the last century? And one of the, one of the answers was that it, uh, it may be because, uh, the body was normally running hotter because we were dealing with more infections. And another answer was that the body was hotter because it was having to work harder to maintain itself metabolically. Um, because now we have climate control. It's like, um, it's like all over the world that we have, uh, air conditioning and heating. And so we have regulated our climate so much that the, the body isn't having to strive as much. And the question of, of our sedentary lifestyles and the fact that we are like literally cooling down, I don't know whether that's ominous or what, but I think it's an, you know, it's an interesting thing about, about this and about like what it means to, you know, to move and to process and to metabolize and, you know, what is the appropriate amount of, of motion and throughput and flow for mm-hmm. a human body at the scale that we exist, you know, like obviously, like if you were the size of a whale, your metabolism would be comparably slower. There's that whole like Jeffrey West thing with the, you know, the, the whale and the mouse and every mammal has uh, a roughly a, a billion and a half heartbeats over the course of its life. And it's just about yeah, body yeah. size and vascularization and so on. So, at any rate, this like there's that there's that whole chunk of it, um, that kernel about like how things are changing and and you know I I've been sitting on this uh, literally sitting here trying to move like mute the mic and like move a little bit while you're speaking you know and just like yeah. remain fluid uh, so that I'm not just a talking head in this conversation. Um, <laughs> But, but, uh, you know, all of this sort of slots into this, uh, for me at the place where this question of how the measured decline in human body temperature may have something to do with the epidemic of chronic depression that we're facing as a species right now and the need for somatic therapies and, uh, the need to get people back up and why I am so excited at the prospect of erupting, like breaching into this, into this new spatial understanding where we communicate through not just the, you know, sitting at a desk all day. Cause frankly, like, I think that's been the single hardest thing for me since taking on my new job like a year and a half ago was being pinned to the desk. And I am Mm -hmm. like, when do I get to dance my social media (laughs) job? You know, like when, like when, when can I make 
the you know like what i was talking about with uh, anthony thogmartin like with the mimu gloves you know that like the musical controller gloves that that were co-designed <laughs> are like are, are like uh being uh touted around by image and heap you know that like when can you dance the music that you want to play you know when when can we start to express ourselves when can the somatic therapy and the art therapy really become the same thing and when can it become so woven into the fabric of our lives that it's not just us uh sitting on skype speaking to one another sitting in a chair but like you know like we're at a point where we're at i think you know and this is this is the banner i've been carrying for my entire adult life is that like we're at the cusp of this major evolutionary transition like the evolutionary transition from individual cells to multicellular organisms where it be- it's it's becoming increasingly clear that the language that we have is insufficient but i do not believe that language more broadly understood in like a diana reed slattery xenolinguistics sense yeah. is insufficient and she talks about this too about how when she, you know when she's you know, she's way overdue on this show and I'm going to get, I'm going to get her on as soon as I possibly can. But she talks mm. about this in her book a lot about how, when she is operating in her psychonautic praxis that she was like you were saying, you know, compelled to move as she is writing, you know, that she was writhing like a snake as she was taking dictation from this mysterious other self, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that that, that motion and capturing it in rather than just like black dots on a musical staff or rather than just the QWERTY keyboard thing, but finding new ways to transcribe, to record, to, uh, to capture and to transmit exactly. this stuff yep. is like the challenge that we are facing as a species right now. If we are to like move forward in an integrated way, I don't know. What do you think? You just pinpointed exactly, exactly what my life is also really dedicated to. That is the purpose of art therapy in the psychedelic space. How creating art before this is, so this is a, um, a paper that I'm currently working on. So I'm like been dancing around it, but I've been like sensitive to bring it up because it's my baby. But, um, I'm writing a paper right now on how art integrates into the psychedelic experience with um, preparation during and integration. Preparation. If you make an image, I personally, and I've heard a lot in um, in the lineage of holotropic breathwork, that images that come up before session typically can predict what will happen in a session. Like I once, before um, a mescaline experience, drew a heart with this ocean pouring out of it. And it turned out that I spent that whole day processing grief of a relationship that I had lost. And I didn't go in thinking about it, but the image had said like, girl, we got to get this stuff out of the system. The image was directly how my body said, how, how it planned on using the medicine. So by using image before my body was like, this is what I'd like to get out of the way. And, you know, the medicine plus my body did did the damn thing. I didn't think about an intention. I made an image that then dictated my experience. And during, I feel like we can have such potent insights of uh, an image that depicts a new way of looking at things. And something that's really important that 
distinguishes just using art in a psychedelic space versus art therapy is that as an art therapist, I have the language non-judgmentally and truly non-violently help somebody look at their image. One of my least favorite things is when people say to kids like, oh, crying a tree. It's like, if I could give, you know, actually you being a new parent, um, letting your letting a human tell you what they're doing, fi- helping them find the language to really figure out what they're making, you know, creating space for their truth to open up instead of my analyzation of what they're doing. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot yes. of yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of space there. I think there's a certain bridge. It takes this right balance of curiosity and tenacity to sit with people through suffering with medicines and help them figure out what their image is saying. Because lots of times we have wounded parts that like are really unhappy with us. And helping people, uh, I'm trying to find this one Alex Gray quote that I quote in absolutely everything. But art as the as the bridge you know, this idea that Alex and I have talked about a lot of art creates like a, a crystallized passageway from my psyche to the image, like to the outside world. Normally, it's like, tell me about your experience. When somebody's coming out of a psychedelic state, I don't ever say to them, tell me about it. I, I hand them paper, you know, show me it. Even if you write down words, being able to go from, you know, the body, which technically would be like the lower parts of the brain to paper, you're still staying in that lower part of the brain, but the content is being welcomed into the outside world. And I think there's something really important in that bridge of giving this wisdom space on paper or giving this this suffering that people are going through space on paper instead of just having to speak about it. I think it is what you're speaking to of that there is through the artistic experience, it transcends words, you know? It really, really does transcend the need for language, which, of course, we need it, but there's just something so incredibly profound about what our images are saying, you know? Mm. So, Alyssa, this has just been an extraordinary delight for me, (laughs) this this conversation with you. I want to wrap it by inviting you to. Okay, so here th- these are the questions. Um, yes, you're in a conversation with your future self. You know, make of that what you will. You know, I mm-hmm. I, I tend to regard the future self, if it's not evident from this conversation, as. Uh, something that transcends my current understanding of self, something that includes other people and non-people, you know, Mm non-persons in a Donna Haraway kind of sense, you know, something that, that uh, wraps the planet and beyond. But you're in a conversation with this futurity. What do you say to it? And what do you want to hear it say to you? Hmm. (laughs) oh man that's awesome it's awesome because you're asking like a deeply closeted occult practitioner who does stuff like this on the daily so hell yeah Um, oh you're you're not closeted anymore we know now not not anymore yeah now you know uh what would i want to say 
how do I open my heart more? How do I be kinder? How do I be kinder? How do I be kinder? How do I be more selfless? And how do I commit to my purpose deeper? You know, and what she says to me constantly is uh, keep going. It's working. When things are good, keep going. It's working. When things are difficult, keep going. It's working. But yeah, that is what she says to me. <laughs> mm. You know, just as an annotation to that, I've, for years I've, I've thought about how the word amateur comes from like ama or amour comes from the, mm -hmm. it means, you know, the love like doing things for the love yeah. of it. Yeah. And a professional is to speak, like to to project this this thing, you know, to be an, uh, a sort of uh, an expert or an authority. And so I think that we've created a false dichotomy between these two things. And I've been Ooh. considering, as should be obvious, I love your notion of being a, a professional friend. Um, yeah. For years now, secretly, I'm coming out of the closet saying that, that I've, I've wanted to name my band Professional Amateurs, you know, yeah. and I think that and I, and, and, I, and I just want to put this out there that like, just based on your response to that question, I really want to leave people with the sense that, I mean, you are, how old are you now? I just turned 24. 24. Holy it's crap. My least favorite question on the planet, man. Come no, on. no, no. That's it's it's it, no, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. You've accomplished so much in 24 years. Thank you know, you. I'm 36, and I yeah. feel like I have to. I feel like I'm in the process of of a kind of like spiritual auto archaeology with my own life now, <laughs> and like recovering where when I was 24 and living in Boulder, and and you know. But so I, you know, I I I, I say this because it's like I hope that other people feel about you the way that I feel about you, which is oh. inspired and energized and animated and, and activated to take it up and to do as your future self says, you know, to, to, to keep going and to go deeper into this and to expand it and to go wider and, and to explore it. Um, because, you know, this, this professional amateur thing, I think it would be, I'm not sure I need the therapy, but like if I did, I would be honored to have you. And, oh, you know, and I think what? I hope, you know, that's what you just said there about people saying, oh, I can't make art and so on. You know, like that's something that I encountered specifically as a painter on the festival yeah. circuit for years and years and years and years. Uh, mm -hmm. Encountering this wound with people who are, you know, just like, oh, I'm not a professional. And it's like, well, you know, to the extent that you are an amateur, you know, to the extent that you are capable of connecting with your love of yourself and of, of the world and of that which you allow to be expressed through you, then that empowers you as a professional. And, and I think that, you know, one of the reconstitutions, one of the, sh you know, the shuddering transitions that we're moving through right now is about like accreditation, you know, yeah. and who gives who the right, who gave you, who, you know, like you actually have a lot of official certification um, just... to do the work that you're doing. And I think, that, you know, it's important to receive training, but I think we often confuse the, the knowledge with the 
the credentials, the piece of paper, you know, and institutionally, we are still deeply, deeply confused about this. And this is something that, you know, we're going to be working through. And I just want to encourage people, you know, to not shrink from the radiance that you are, you know, but rather to, to, um, to see it as a reflection of, of their own brilliance and, and to grab the ring and fucking go for it. Uh, If that's the energy that I brought to this podcast, I thank you for that. That's all. That's all I ever wish to bring is um, my Instagram handle is mycelialis last sentiment here. And it's, it's been funny using this like Instagram name as a tool of manifestation, but it totally is. I was um, sitting with two of my dear friends and I said, you know, my gift is, I want to nourish people. I want to be in community and I want to be a point of nourishment. And someone was like, like mycelium. I'm like, yes, that's exactly it. Like I wish to just simply be the mycelium in community. I wish, you know, mushrooms and humans are two, two species kingdoms that we're two beings that we need to be nourished by our environment. And if one person can walk away and be like, you know what? I'm actually going to give my music more attention. I'm going to give my art, my dance, you know, my, these weird AI programs that I like building, please use them for good. I just do it, you know, like just do what pulls you creatively because what I've learned stepping into my professional shoes is that if you're passionate enough and if you are with your truth enough, that is a beacon of light and people want to flock to that. And that just, um, setting aside the the identity of like nobody cares about what i do or i'm not confident enough that is where i wish to nourish in community and in society so yeah that is the impact i wish to have is just to be the mycelium just to help nourish hmm Thank you, Alyssa. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. This was a privilege. I feel like we'd probably talk for another few hours. We probably could. Yeah, let's let's uh, <laughs> let's get you back on. Not to jinx this, but I I just got an email from the uh, the maps people that suggests that we my my friend Mitch Mignano and I yeah. uh, might actually be moving into the final step of um, securing responsibilities as co-producers of their rebooted official podcast. So like I would love if that does indeed come true, I would love to have you on the maps podcast. Um, Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been actively in the maps world for a couple of years now, so that'd be pretty right. (laughs) Right. Awesome, man. Let's lovely to talk to you. I hope to talk to you again soon. Take care. Yeah. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is one of many illuminating podcasts available on the MindPod network. I recommend you uh, trip on over there and check them all out. For more episodes, show notes, and extensive copious extras, head over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Subscribe to the show anywhere you go for podcasts. And I'm always happy to hear from you. Future Fossils Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And may your now be deep, wide, and wonderful. Until next time. <laughs>